My name is Tony Shen. I'm one of the pastors here in the church. It is my honor, pleasure, joy, responsibility to preach the Word of God to you this morning. I have a question for you. Who likes money? I like money. There's like four honest people here. I like money. I got a degree in economics in college. I went to business school to get an MBA. I like reading business and economics and financial news. I like teaching my kids about money. I like watching movies about business and money. I like keeping track of money. I keep track of the money at home, and as part of my job here at the church, I serve as the treasurer, one of the officers of the church. So I keep money of, uh, track of money at church. Uh, I like criticizing the government for what it does with our money. God has a lot to say about money. The Bible has many, many passages about money. Someone has figured out that the Bible has twice as many verses about money than it does about faith and prayer combined. So today we are going to learn from a small portion of the Bible what God has to say about money, how we should feel about it, and what we should do with it. I ask you to turn to the sixth chapter of the letter of 1 Timothy, and the sixth chapter is the last chapter of this short letter. This letter was written by the Apostle Paul to his younger colleague Timothy, and he later wrote another letter to Timothy, which, of course, is 2 Timothy. In 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul is giving Timothy encouragement and instructions about how to lead the church in Ephesus, okay, which was a major city of the Roman Empire in what is now modern-day Turkey. Ephesus, you might recognize the name, is mentioned significantly in other parts of the New Testament, uh, in the book of Acts, for example, uh, and the church there got its own letter from the Apostle Paul, that would be the letter to the Ephesians, and the resurrected Jesus sent them a short note in the book of Revelation, chapter 3. Okay. So, the first letter of 1 Timothy covers a lot of ground before we get to our passage in chapter 6. Paul speaks against false teachers. He recalls how God was gracious to him as a terrible sinner. He commands them to pray. He tells how people should behave in church. He gives the qualifications of pastors. He exhorts Timothy to have good self-discipline. He tells them how to take care of widows in the church. And he says how elders, uh, that is to say pastors, should act and how they should be treated. Okay? This brings us to chapter 6, verse 6. Okay? Now, let's read about our first topic on your outline, which is godly contentment. Verses 6 through 8. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. Now, the following isn't the point of my sermon, but in context, Paul's statement here is a counterpoint to the flow of the argument he is making in the previous few verses that false teachers are in the ministry to get rich. Okay? Now, we read about the greed of false teachers in a place like Second Peter, uh, which I preached last year. And we also see in our modern day that there are many televangelists and other health, wealth, and prosperity gospel preachers who are very rich, and they're in it, it would seem, to get even richer. But let's actually focus on godly contentment. 
Contentment is one of the key qualities that God wants us to develop. Okay? The command and exhortation to be content is repeated to us throughout all of Scripture. It actually goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden and the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve had everything at their disposal except for one thing, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But they weren't content with everything else, and so they followed their desires. The tree was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes, and it was desirable to make one wise, Genesis 3.6. They fell victim then to the deceptions of the enemy. And as a result, their human nature, which had been created perfect by God, became fallen and corrupted, and that is why we also are fallen and sinful. We have inherited a fallen, sinful nature that we cannot make up for ourselves, and that is why we sin. We have all sinned. The Scripture teaches us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is very bad news. And the bad news can only be counteracted by truly good news, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But contentment is also a theme in the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus. The Tenth Commandment is, anybody know? You shall not covet. Right? You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Not his Ferrari, not his nice house, nothing. Why must we be commanded not to covet? Because we are not content. It's part of our sinful nature. We've been going through the New City Catechism. As the Catechism puts it in question 12, what is required of us in the Tenth Commandment? And the answer is that we are content. Not envying anyone or resenting what God has given them or us, that we are content. In the New Testament, there are a number of passages urging us to be content. Hebrews 13.5, for example, says, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For God Himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever leave you. The Apostle Paul states in Philippians 4, 11 through 13, writing from prison, by the way, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, when Paul writes that godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment, he is not talking about getting rich in the conventional sense. He is talking about the joy and satisfaction you feel when you are content with what God has given you. That is what we are supposed to feel and enjoy. Okay, so let's look at verse 7. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. Now, this is one of those obviously true statements that we could easily skip over without even thinking about. It's so true that in our culture we have another saying that's just like it. You can't take it with you. 
You can't take it with you. When you die, you can't take your belongings with you. We should contemplate this, though, because we are often obsessed with our physical belongings, our clothes, our cars, our homes, our money, our stuff, our bank accounts, our retirement accounts. But in one breath, Paul tells us that this physical chapter of life that begins at birth, we brought nothing into this world, and ends at death, we can take nothing out of this world, is not worth obsessing over. And in verse 8, he tells us that we should just worry about the basics, food and covering, food, clothing, and shelter. Okay? It's the basic, basic necessities of life. Jesus talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. God knows that we need these things, so he has committed to providing it for us because he loves us. So we shouldn't be anxious about these things. We should not covet other things. We should be content. But are we content? Not really. Second point on your outline, the love of money. Verse 9. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Okay, when we are not content, bad things happen. Paul writes specifically about three things. Temptation and snare, foolish and harmful desires, and a plunge into ruin and destruction. Okay? Temptation and snare. Temptation is the opportunity to sin. Okay? It's not sin itself. Jesus was tempted in all ways, yet without sin. In our greed, though, we can always find opportunities to let our hearts desire more than what is good for us. And it's very deceptive because it seems good to have more of some good things. And we justify getting more or hoarding more. We justify that to ourselves. But it's a trap. That is what a snare is, a trap. We follow our greed into getting more, and we get trapped. We're going to talk about this a little bit more later, but the trap that we often fall into is a trap of debt. We owe money, and we pay high interest, a lot of times because we want more than what we can pay for, what God has provided for us out of our earnings or our savings. Okay? And credit card debt in particular is a trap. It's a snare. My counsel to you would be don't even play with it. Second, he talks about foolish and harmful desires. The connotation of the word desires here is not just wants, it is actually evil desires, okay? So there are good desires and there are bad desires, and this is the evil kind. They are foolish because from God's point of view, they don't make sense. It's stupid. It's illogical. It is irrational to want something sinful, and even just saying those words, I'm choking on them because I have a sinful nature. Because from our sinful point of view, we can justify a whole lot to ourselves. Is it really irrational? Like, I can totally make rational sense of it if I want to do something that's sinful, right? 
We can totally justify it to ourselves. We can even get so evil as to be harmful. James 4 talks about how some of us wants things so badly that we are willing to hurt and murder other people in order to get them. Thank God He is gracious with us. Third, he talks about the plunge into ruin and destruction. The word plunge is the same word used to describe a ship sinking into the depths of the ocean. Ruin uh, usually means physical destruction, while the word destruction refers to eternal spiritual destruction. So you see why Paul used both words there, ruin, physical, and destruction, meaning spiritual. Okay? These are very serious consequences. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Now this is often misquoted. Money is the root of all evil. Right? Money is the root of all evil. But it's not quite that. It's not quite that. The, 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 it's the love of money, not money itself. That is a root of evil. And the original text, the Greek... Okay, doesn't say that the love of money is the root of all evil, because the Greek doesn't have the the there, the, the definite pronoun, okay? uh, the definite article, rather. The there there. It is the love of money is a root, and not of all evil, but of all sorts of evil. Okay? The love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. The point is clear. We should strive and make sure our hearts don't love money. Jesus warned us about this again in Matthew 6. He says, No one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and wealth. Notice that the love of money can be had by both the rich and the poor. You can be rich and love money and hoard it and desire more of it and want to grow it and be stingy with it. You can also be poor and love money. It's just that you don't have very much of it. But you long to have it and your heart is set on it. The spiritual sin of loving money can be committed both by the rich and the poor and everyone in between, so we have to guard our hearts. Now back to verse 10. By longing for money, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. This point is made pretty clear in Scripture. In a few cases, some well-known, some obscure. Way back during the conquest of the Promised Land by the Israelites, a man named Achan took a beautiful piece of furniture and silver and gold even though they were commanded, the Israelites were commanded by God to leave everything alone. He eventually admitted it. He was found out. And the Israelites, this was a serious matter, gave him the death penalty. They stoned him to death. Okay? In the New Testament, the most obvious example is Judas Iscariot, who sold out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. You cannot serve both God and wealth. And lastly, uh, the Apostle Paul writes in the next letter, 2 Timothy, that a former co-minister of his, Demas, has loved this present world and deserted me. Isn't that so sad? 
that you would leave the best and highest calling just to chase money. And yet, Demas was just among the first of many. And also, there, but for the grace of God, go I. Because I preach to you as a sinner saved by Christ, to other sinners, some saved by Christ, I don't ever assume that I'm always speaking to all Christians, and some not, or at least not yet. I feel the tug of money on my heart. Like I said, I like money. I love my job. This is the best job that I've ever had, serving as a pastor in this church. I don't foresee abandoning it, but there is a lot more money that can be made out there than on my church salary, and sometimes it's tempting to think about working outside the church, even if I could still serve as one of the pastors. I just wouldn't be able to do as much directly here. Okay? So the temptation is there. He writes that people have pierced themselves with many griefs. We think that being richer will solve all our problems. But sometimes the lust for money comes with a lot of pain and heartache. The most obvious is when you have too much credit card debt or other debt and you have to declare bankruptcy. That's being pierced with grief. And by the way, historically, the concept of bankruptcy is relatively recent, just in the past 200 years or so. Before that, and some would argue even now, people who failed to repay debt on time went to prison. They would either have to work in debtor's prison or uh, in order to pay off their debt slowly, or uh, they or their families would have to somehow scrounge up the funds in order to repay the debt. Another example, a lot of people who get money suddenly don't use it wisely. There are many stories of lottery winners and professional athletes who have been pierced with many griefs over their newfound wealth. And a final example is people who receive inheritances. It is not rare that a large inheritance is fought over by the heirs. Many, many ways in which the love of money can lead to being pierced with grief. All right, now let's quickly read over verses 11 through 16, not because, they, uh, not, not because they aren't important, but because for the sake of this sermon, I want to uh, continue our attention on money. But still, we need to read these verses because, first of all, they're right there. And secondly, I must share with you the good news of Jesus Christ. So let's read. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Amen? Amen. What Paul is talking about with Timothy here is the gospel. Gospel is just a 
Christian word that means the good news. It's not actually even specifically Christian. Back in the, the days when it was used, the Greek word euangelion just literally meant good news. So you could have good news about various different things. But in biblical times in the New Testament, the gospel, the euangelion, from which we get the word evangelism, is to tell people the good news. The good news is that while we are sinners and have a sinful nature and we have all sinned and therefore face the penalty of sin, which is eternal hell and condemnation, that is very bad news. We have good news. And the good news is this, that Jesus, who is God in the flesh, died for our sins. God the Father sent the Son to be a human being who lived a perfect life that we could never live, a perfect life without sin, and that He went to the cross, the mode of execution in Roman times, for us to die and to pay the penalty of sin. And then He rose on the third day when we celebrate Easter. We celebrate the rising of Jesus, the resurrection, the first of many, those who believe in Him. And part of the good news is that we don't have to do anything except believe. We are saved not by any works of our own, but by Christ's work. We are saved not by anything that we have done, but by the grace of God, because we don't merit it. And we are saved not by doing anything, but through our faith, which God Himself gives us. We don't have to drum up faith on our own. It is a gift of God so that no one can boast about being saved. We just come to the cross and we throw ourselves at the mercy of God. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That is the good news. And then we live this life by the power of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the triune God who indwells the believer and He empowers us against the power of sin. So while we are still struggling with this fallen nature, I am being made in Christ's image a little bit more with some rocky bumps, right? Kind of like this stock chart, <laughs> right? Some rocky bumps, hopefully generally upward, but growing in sanctification, growing in holiness day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, until we are glorified until we go to be with the Lord. And then one day, Jesus is going to come back. We don't know when that is going to be, but, but Paul mentions it here. At the proper time, Jesus is going to come back, and He is going to come back in power and glory. And that will be a day of reckoning for the whole world. So, come to Jesus now if you haven't already. If you've already come to Jesus, make sure you cling to Him. Cling to Him and trust in Him. Not just that one time. Not because you said the prayer or whatever. Every day, every day I need you, we sang earlier. Come to Jesus and be with Jesus. Now that we know who Jesus is and how God through Christ has graciously saved sinners and how Jesus is coming back at the proper time that God will bring about, now we can go on to be instructed about how to handle our money. The next point on your outline is instructions for the rich. Verse 17, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited, 
not to be conceited, or fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. In the context of the letter, this is the Apostle Paul telling the guy he left in charge at Ephesus, Timothy, what what to do. Timothy is supposed to teach the people who are in the church at Ephesus. And specifically in this verse, Timothy is supposed to instruct those who are rich in this present world a number of things. Now, since I am one of the men who is in charge of this local church in Playa del Rey, the application of this verse is that I am supposed to instruct you about money. It is a command to me as one of your pastors, as one of your leaders. If I don't follow this command in Scripture, then I am in sin. Okay, so here we go. I'm supposed to instruct those who are rich in the present world not to be conceited and not to fix their hope on money, but to fix their hope on God. First of all, you might be tempted to tune out because you think to yourself, I'm not rich. Bill Gates, he's rich. Mark Zuckerberg, he's rich. Elon Musk, he's rich. Jeff Bezos, he's rich. He's half as rich as he used to be. He's not talking about me. Actually, this verse does apply to us. Basically to all of us. Why? Because in this context, being rich in the present world means having more than just the basics, which again is what? Food and covering. Okay? So if you have more than the basics, you're rich in this present world. And although there are certainly some of us who are wealthier than others by the standards of Scripture, we are all wealthy. And really, most of us are either high income or wealthy compared to the global population. According to one study, if you make $60,000 a year, you're in the top 9% of all income earners in the whole world. And according to another study, if you have a net worth of $93,000 or more, you're in the top 10%. Heck, if you have a net worth of just 4200 you have more wealth than at least half the population of the world. Okay? That being said, I do think that the wealthier you are, the more consideration you have to give your heart in terms of the love of money. Okay? So no one can tune out. But those who are on the wealthier side, you would do well to tune in more intently. So first, do not be conceited. Do not brag. Don't think of yourself more highly than what you are. Be humble. It's not a sin to have money. Sometimes God blesses people with wealth. Job, Solomon, Abraham in the Old Testament, wealthy men. Lydia, Joseph of Arimathea in the New Testament are people with wealth. Okay? But it is a sin to think that money makes you better than other people. It's a sin of pride because in being conceited, you don't give God credit. In Deuteronomy 18, in the law, the Lord warns the Israelites who are about to enter the promised land, don't forget, I brought you out of Egypt and I gave you this land. Don't become proud and forget the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 8.14, verse 18. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the power to make wealth. Making wealth, not necessarily bad. He gives you the power to make it. Being conceited and forgetting the Lord your God, that's a problem. 
Okay, second, don't fix your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. This is the phrase I used for the title of my sermon. The uncertainty of riches. Don't fix your hopes on them. Now, there are more wise and less wise ways to handle your money, but just because you follow all of the biblical wisdom and instruction and God blesses you and builds your wealth, that doesn't mean you should put all your hope on it. The wealth is not necessarily going to be there for you. Job learned this, and what did he say? The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. First of all, uh, the, the Great Depression and the Black Monday stock market crash in 1929, if it has taught us anything, if the dot-com bubble of two, early 2000s has taught us anything, if the subprime mortgage lending crisis has taught us anything from the late 2000s, uh, it is something, uh, and, and if the wild swings of cryptocurrency, right, values have taught us anything, it is that sometimes the things that we think have value don't have as much value as we thought. It's the uncertainty of riches. If you put your hopes on them, you could be pierced with many griefs. And secondly, what did we learn earlier? For we have brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of it either. You can't take it with you. One of, the, uh, one of the youth group students just reminded me of a, another saying, there are no hearses with luggage racks. Okay. Some of the ancient pagans did believe in taking material possessions with them to the afterlife. I think of the pharaohs of ancient Egypt who built uh, pyramids to bring their wealth into the afterlife. I think of the terracotta warriors of China and other treasures who were buried with the emperor for the afterlife. But the biblical teaching is opposite. In Luke 12, Jesus tells the parable of the rich man who was building huge storage grains uh, bins for his grain uh, because all of that surplus made him feel rich and comfortable. But God said to him, you fool! This very night, your soul is required of you. And now who will own all which you have prepared? You can't take it with you. And Jesus ends these somber words with these somber words of warning. So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Which is exactly what the Apostle Paul then writes as an instruction to us. Do not fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but fix your hope on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Listen to that. God richly supplies us, and we are supposed to enjoy the things that he supplies us with. We are not ascetics. Okay? We are told in Scripture that it is a blessing to be able to eat drink, and be merry in Ecclesiastes. We are supposed to enjoy the pleasures of marriage, Song of Solomon. And above all, we are supposed to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Philippians. Now, in verse 17, we are instructed to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. While it is critically important that we understand that in terms of our salvation, okay, if you want to be crass about it, getting into heaven, it's that the grace of God comes first, okay? The grace of God comes first and then doing good. This is really, really important. It's a critical 
Critical point to make, so I, I, I pray you are paying attention. Pastor Matt preached this last week. We always try to emphasize this to some extent every Sunday. You cannot earn your way to heaven because the law does not have the power to save. Okay? The law only has the power to condemn. And when we break the law, I hope we've been clear, we've all broken God's law, we all stand guilty before God. The law does not have the power to save. Only the gospel has the power to save. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. Only the grace of God through His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, has the power to save. And this is why we call it the gospel or the good news. It is good news because all you must do is believe. It is not good news if you have to earn your way to doing good. This is a critical difference because it sets biblical Christianity apart from all the false religions of the world, including those Christian-ish cults. Okay? For example, one of the pillars of Islam is to give alms, give to the poor. That sounds a lot like be generous and be ready to share. But the key is that in Islam, you're saved by good works and then only at the discretion of Allah. But in Christianity, you're saved by the grace of God, which frees you from sin and it frees you to then perform the good deeds and to be generous, to walk in the good deeds that God has prepared for us, Paul writes in Ephesians. That is the good news. The last verse of our passage today is in verse 19. And the, uh, the last um, point on your outline in the passage, verse 19, uh, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Now, before I speak a little bit about this closing verse, I want to take us through instruction on money. In this passage, we are told a little bit about what to do and what not to do about money. What to do? Be content. Fix our hopes on God. Do good. Be rich in good works. Be generous. Be ready to share. All very straightforward. What not to do? Avoid wanting to get rich, which leads to greed and covetousness. Don't be conceited. Don't fix your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Okay? But now I want to take a short digression since we're toward the end of our time together and share with you a fairly comprehensive teaching that I have learned and then taught. In fact, I just finished a four-week series on these teachings with the youth group at our church. Our youth director, Ryan, was kind enough to open the floor for me as I taught the teenagers, and the students were really attentive and asked a lot of good questions. Now, for this next session, I draw heavily on materials from Ron Blue, who has a video series called God Owns It All. This is the workbook. And a book called Master Your Money, a step-by-step plan for experiencing financial contentment. Okay? I use these books and another book by Randy Alcorn entitled Money, Possessions, and Eternity, okay? which, by the way, in my copy, uh, Ron Blue has, a, uh, has a, like a quote in there saying that it was very formative for him. Uh, I taught the youth group, and, and I also used these books to teach a course on biblical stewardship in our Delray Bible Institute a few years ago. 
I highly recommend these books to have a true biblical understanding of money. In fact, I would call Money, Possessions, and Eternity uh, a must-read. Okay? Literally, we all really, really ought to read this book. Okay? So, uh, in this, I mentioned five steps to understanding my finances, and this is also on your outline. The five steps are God owns it all. Number two, I'm managing his resources and I need to doing, do it according to five principles. Step three, I can use my money only in five ways. Step four, God provides for me in five stages. And step five, if I really want to understand my finances, I must understand that the longer my time perspective, the better my decisions will be. Okay. Five steps. Okay, so first of all, God owns it all. The scriptures teach us, Psalm 21, 24, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Similarly, in Psalm 50, God himself says, for the world is mine and all it contains. Okay. Step one is to realize that God owns it all. What does that make us? Because we're not, if we're not owners, what are we? So step two is to understand that I'm managing his resources. I am not the owner. I am a steward. A steward is someone who takes care of things for the owner. Okay. A steward is one who takes care of things for the owner. Okay, so step two is uh, I am a steward and I need to manage God's resources according to five principles. Okay. First of all, it's to give generously. And because our passage in 1 Timothy 6 talks a lot about giving, uh, I want to talk about why we should give generously. It's because God gives to us, first of all, right? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me, Paul writes in Galatians. Okay. Paul writes again in 2 Corinthians, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Also, we want to uh, give generously because giving for the right reasons is actually an investment that will pay off eternally in the future. This is partially what Paul is talking about when he says uh, to give is to store up for yourselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future. Okay. It says in Mark chapter 10, we read this this morning at the beginning of service, Looking at the one who owned much property, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, go and sell all you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Right? So you give away what you have in this world because you can't take it with you anyway and you can have treasure in heaven, which is where you're going for all eternity. Right? Okay. Jesus also taught, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moss and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither, wrath, neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Okay. 
And this brings us to those last couple of uh, verses in our passage. Once again, let's see. Right. Instruct those who are rich to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. This is an investment in your own future. So two really good motivations to give. Now, these other, um, these other uh, principles is that I want to go through are just going to be very, very quick. Uh, literally, I could preach a whole sermon on each one of these steps, but we're getting short on time, so let's go. Uh, spend less than I earn because every success in my financial life depends on this habit. The widespread use of credit cards has made it all too easy to spend more than we earn, but this is a bad habit. Okay? Every decision related to money is a trade-off of one kind or another. Three, avoid the use of debt because debt costs much more to pay off in the future. Okay? Not all debt is bad, but some kinds of debt are very bad. Okay? Number four, Build or save margin for the future because the unexpected will happen. And number five, set long-term goals. Okay? God sets long-term goals. He's going to bring about the return of Jesus at the appointed time. He has a whole plan, and he's going to carry it out. Okay? We can't carry out plans like that because we're not God. But anyway, we, have, uh, we, have, we can have long-term goals. Okay, step three. I can only use money in five ways. And uh, Ron Blue has this little pie chart. So, it's give, okay, it's owe taxes, everyone pays taxes, death and taxes, the two certainties in life. We owe debt, right, if you have debt, you owe debt, you have to pay it. You put money aside for the future, grow, oops, and, uh, and the last one is live, okay, so these are the four uh, so far. Now, for uh, growing for the future, um, we have this question, right, it's kind of a clever thing. When is the best time to plant a fruit tree? 20 years ago. Because now you can enjoy the fruits, right? When is the next best time to plant a fruit tree? Today. Yeah, right now. Okay? So it's not too late. It's not too late. If you haven't been doing it before, you want to start doing it now. That is the, uh, that is the principle of growing for the future. Now, debt and investing are opposites. With debt, you borrow from the future to consume now. And because of interest rates and compounding, again, I could s spend a whole lot of time doing the, uh, talking about this, you pay a whole lot more eventually than you enjoy now. And on the other hand, with investing, you put money aside now uh, in order to enjoy the fruit later. Okay? With the return on investment and compounding, you get a lot more in the future for relatively small sacrifice now. Okay. Now, let's not forget that even with investing, money invested in early assets uh, still carries the uncertainty of riches. So the best long-term investment strategy is actually to lay up our uh, riches, our treasures in heaven. Basically, it's an infinitely high return on investment because we will always be able to use those heavenly riches, whereas with earthly riches, well, we already know you can't take it with you, right? Okay, so then you uh, live on the rest. Sorry. 
Now, these are regular expenses that we must uh, pay in order to live in the present. Again, the basics are food, clothing, shelter. Modern life also makes some things seemingly indispensable like, you know, car, uh, cell phone, health care, insurance, that sort of thing, right? Now, look at the order. The biblical order is do this first, right? Give, then you got to owe your taxes, you got to pay off your debt, grow, and live. Give, owe, owe, grow, live. Okay? Give, oh, oh, grow, live, or, you know, Google. Google. All right. What does our culture say about how to use this money? Basically, our culture is spend, consume, go into debt to consume. I hate taxes. I don't save much. And I'll think about giving a little something if I have anything left over. But basically, it's an afterthought. Not to mention, I kind of do it to solve my conscience. And by the way, I'll only give large amounts if there's a tax deduction. Friends, this is not a biblical way of thinking, and it's downright foolish. But this is our culture. When you hear about the economy, what do we hear? Good news, consumer spending was up in the fourth quarter. Retailers and economists are really happy about that. We don't hear... Consumers are spending less and saving more. Personal investments have been growing. Good news. No. Our culture's values are around spending, spending, spending. Do we read about how people have so much money saved for retirement that they really feel long-term security? No. Only 10% of people think they have enough saved for retirement. And is there any doubt that giving is a low priority? Let me ask you, does Giving Tuesday come before or after Black Friday and Cyber Monday? It's an afterthought, literally afterthought. Okay? Now, for Christians, the scriptures uh, talk about uh, that we should set aside every week, right? On the first day of the week, that is to say Sunday, we should set aside according to what we prosper, so it's, it's proportional. And I don't mean proportional like 10%, like a millionaire should give 10%, and you know, somebody who's making uh, $60,000 should give 10%. It's proportional according to how you prosper. So actually, the millionaire should try to live on like a reasonable amount of money and then you know, give you know, because he's prospered more. Okay, so this gets to my, la- uh, my next step. Uh, Ron Blue's next step for God provides for me in five stages. Okay, takes a lot of potential explaining, but I'm going to go through it really quickly anyway. So you could be struggling, right? You're uh, barely making ends meet, or you could be have surplus and you can actually complete your long-term goals. And in between, there's a handful of other uh, stages, okay? Um, but Hopefully, at least most of us are, are surviving, but we don't have an emergency fund, so what do we do? We, we set aside margin for the future because the unexpected can happen. So if we can do that, now we're maybe stable and we can save from major purchases. And if we're stable and then we get secure, again, the uncertainty of riches, no one's fully secure about this, you diversify to meet long-term goals, and then if you have surplus, you can complete your goals, and then that those goals can actually uh, include you know, you know, really, really generous giving, for example. But the struggling, he says here, right, eliminate uh, all high interest and short-term debt. So that, that would be one thing to do 
if you're struggling. That's not the only thing to do, of course, but that is one thing to do, okay? So uh, that is step four. The fifth step is that the longer my time perspective, if I understand this correctly, the longer my time perspective, the better my decisions will be, okay? The longer my time perspective, the better my decisions will be, okay? So in the, what we want to have is an eternal perspective, an eternal perspective. If we have an eternal perspective, we're going to make much better decisions. In the Gospels, Peter says to Jesus, behold, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus answers him and says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Eternal life. And then a second thing that Jesus said is to... Uh, the church in Ephesus. It's this church where Timothy is currently ministering, okay? Jesus says in Revelation 3, you say, I am rich and wealthy, and I don't need anything. They're relying on their riches. But you don't know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So I advise you, Jesus is a financial advisor now, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you can become rich. He's not talking about earthly gold. He's talking about heavenly gold. Buy from me white garments that you may clothe yourself. Buy from me eye ointment, spiritual eye ointment that you may see. And then we uh, read at the beginning of, uh, of the service uh, the man that, uh, that was a, a, a rich young ruler who owned a lot of property. And Jesus said to him, listen, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But at these words, the young man was saddened and he went away grieving for he was one who owned much property. Jesus said, go, sell it, you'll have treasure in heaven. According to our passage here, what do we have? We, we, we store up for ourselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that you may take hold of that which is life indeed. But this guy didn't. He went away grieving. He owned much property. When did this conversation take place? 2,000 years ago. For the last 2,000 years, this man has been regretting his decision every day. And when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we've first begun. So another 10,000 years from now, he will still be regretting that decision. And if we don't make similar decisions, we will also regret those decisions 2,000 years from now, 10,000 years from now, 10 billion years from now. This life is a drop in the bucket compared to eternity. So make decisions with an eternal perspective. Friends, we have the same opportunity that these folks from the Bible had 2,000 years ago. First and foremost, 
Come to Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. Right? He is powerful and gracious to forgive. He will not turn you down. Secondly, now that Jesus has paid your debt of sin, and believe me, because the Bible says so, sin is a debt. Now that Jesus has paid your debt, you're now free to be generous with your earthly possessions and your money to build up treasure in heaven. There are rewards waiting for us. Remember, you can't take it with you, but, Randy Alcorn says, you can send it on ahead. And third, the greatest treasure we can ever share is Jesus himself. All people are sinners in need of forgiveness and salvation. So let us share the good news of Jesus and proclaim it to our friends, to our neighbors, to our co-workers, to our loved ones, and pray that God would be gracious to them and convert sinners to himself. In fact, let's declare the good news of Jesus as a last step of our worship uh, today. Communion is a picture of the gospel. Now, when we take the wafer, we commemorate the fact that Jesus died and gave up his body to reconcile sinners to God. When we drink the juice, we commemorate the fact that Jesus shed his precious blood to secure the new covenant, the new promise that God made to save sinners, not because we are good, but because Jesus is good. Let's take the bread. And now, now that we have taken the bread and commemorated Jesus' body, let us also take the juice commemorating his blood. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have come and died on the cross for us and that you have risen on the third day and that you wait at the right hand of the Father, waiting to come back in power and glory according to the time set by the Father. We thank you, Lord God, that you have given us your word and your Holy Spirit, that we may understand your word, that your Holy Spirit, he indwells us and he empowers us against sin because, God, we are debtors and sheep prone to wander. So be merciful on us, dear God, and empower us to do the work of your ministry, to use money the way that we ought to, to use our possessions the way that you want us to use our possessions, to preach the gospel, the, the unsearchable riches of Christ to a lost and perishing world. We bless your holy name in the name of Jesus. We pray these things. Amen.